Hello! Hello, guys. <laughs> it's me, Dewey, and this is Macabre Ramblings. Hello guys, hey everybody It's another week, another Sunday I hope you guys are doing okay How are you guys? Staying safe? Staying hydrated? Washing your hands well? Well, you should be So it's, you know, staying safe is the best thing to do Especially at our day and age 2021, another year of our lord <laughs> So, hmm after the paranormal full ramble last week, this week we're going to go for a true crime that I can't say that it's not serious because it's still a crime. Somebody still died, but it's a little bit more of the on the wacky side, the more of on the banana side. Like I don't know, something that isn't as heavy. I I don't like to make comparisons, but it's something that's interesting in a different way compared to the other true crime uh, rambles that I did that are heavy into the psychological and the kid uh, psychopathy type of thing. This one is a little uh, lighter, a little much, a little more on what what had happened in like the far, far, far past. You know those kinds of crimes. I really like those. Like know the crimes in around the bygones time if you could call it that but this is something this is a topic that i have heard from a podcast that i listen to a lot these days i'm sadly too busy to uh listen to the podcast and catch up on the episodes but i really like them they're called the and that's why we drink podcast this is where i first heard about the case and i found it really fascinating and this case is the case of Iron Mike and this is uh, a case about an Irish drunkard I think he's an immigrant and he was very much a drunkard who is he? his real name is actually Michael Malloy and not Iron Mike so that would be pretty rad imagine having a name Iron Mike don't know which is the surname though <laughs> are you Iron or are you Mike? anyway so his name is Michael Malloy, and he is an Irishman originally from County Donegal. So once, when he was in better times, both in uh, lifestyle, money, just generally better times in his life, he had been a fireman. But now when it's in 1933, which is our case is way, way back in the past. Not as the past that I have wanted to, actually. I want to, in the next episodes, I'm thinking of covering a topic that's like and around 1800s or if i could find something really fascinating in the 1700s you know the really really back then type of crime i find it fascinating so if you guys have like a topic like that uh message me i'd like to research stuff regarding those anyway so yeah when you 
when Michael Malloy is in better times, he had been a fireman. But now he is almost a full-time alcoholic. So he basically just go, um, go to the lower class bars of New York's Bronx until the bars basically refused him to enter the bar and order, order drinks because he just put everything in his tab and he doesn't really pay and his credit was piling up. But because he doesn't really have a steady job, he usually goes for jobs that are what are miscellaneous jobs, you know, just the type of jobs that doesn't give you that much money or in comparison to the amount of money that he needs to pay for the tax. His job isn't giving him enough money for that and so the bars just doesn't let him in anymore. So, and his alcoholism basically prevented him from holding down regular jobs. He was one of the derelicts who daily visited this very specific place that is going to be important in this case and this is tony marino's speakeasy at 3804 third avenue also in the bronx so he usually frequented that bar that speakeasy and for a while michael malloy had been hospitably received in marino's speakeasy at first you know he had he is a, a credit risk but it's okay type of thing that's the first thing that they thought of michael malloy he worked michael malloy worked occasionally as a janitor in the neighborhood mostly just sweeping floors to pay for the rent for his cramped dingy room and to obtain the money for his drinks but when his bar bill mounted which is what usually happens his bill mounts his tab overflows and he cannot pay for them he was refused further drinks at Marina Speakeasy and turned away from the free lunch tray. Still, he attended Marino's, Marino Speakeasy every day, uh, usually managing to get a few drinks from the more uh, rich customers because they were amused by his quote-unquote Irish charm and rambling anecdotes recounted with an quote-unquote assumed brogue. Brogue? B-R-O-G-U-E. I don't know what that means, but it sounds <laughs> it sounds sophisticated. It's something that I haven't heard other people use in daily speaking. <laughs> so, at the winter of January 1933, it's depression times. You know that depression uh, when people are basically doing everything that they can to get some money. Michael Malloy came to the attention of the group named Murder Trust. So, before I talk about the Murder Trust, uh, in the Depression, the city's unemployment rate, for the New York Bronx unemployment rate, neared 50% and desperate men sought ways to make a dollar any way they could. So, that's a very dreary statistic. 50% unemployment rate. Okay. So now we go to the Murder Trust. What is the Murder Trust? So the Murder Trust is a kind of an organization, but it's not a grand organization. It's basically just a group of friends, you know, a group of hooligans. <laughs> so they were a mixed, scruffy group of friends, some living barely within the law, some actually outside it. So they had two things in common, though these people in the murder trust 
They all hung out at Marino's speakeasy and they all desperately needed money. So the mainstays of the trust were five people. There was 27-year-old Anthony Marino, which is the proprietor of Marino's speakeasy, where Michael Malloy frequented a lot. And there was also 28-year-old Joseph Murphy, and he is a one-time chemist. One-time chemist, so he became a chemist for like once and then he's not a chemist anymore he is now marino's bartender there was 24 year old francis pasqua a newlywed and an undertaker who owned a funeral parlor on east 117th street there was hershey i want some hershey's right now the chocolate there was hershey or harry green a taxi cab driver and there was 21 29 year old daniel kreisberg the father of three and a fruit vendor. So in the early spring of 1932, so we go back like one year, desperate for cash, they had formed a partnership to take out an insurance policy on a young, bla young blonde woman named Betty Carlson. And she was the girlfriend of Anthony Marino, who is the owner of Speakeasy and the beneficiary named in her policy. So they had insured Betty Carlson's life for $800, which I don't know how much that is today in 2021, but I'd like to think that that's a lot of money, especially in the depression time. So they had insured her life for $800 and a quote-unquote happy coincidence, this investment had paid off. So on a particularly cold night in the spring of 1932, Miss Betty Carlson, insensible from alcohol, had been helped back to her room. There, in her room, she had been stripped naked, she had been laid out on her bed, and she had been doused with cold water. Yeah. Then the windows of her room were thrown wide open to allow her the quote-unquote benefit of the cold winter air. And of course, in the morning, she was found dead, basically, because... Um, <laughs> you're naked and you're doused with water and it's like snowing and very cold outside that's gonna be your death so the coroner gave the cause of death as pneumonia compounded by alcoholism and because she is dead the insurance company had routinely processed her life insurance policy and had paid $800 to Anthony Marino and company so they got the money and that's how they got their partnership basically so Murder trust. So you're trusting others should murder with you. I guess that's how, why? I guess that's a weird name, murder trust. Anyway, so by early January of 1933, so at the time where Michael Malloy was frequenting the speakeasy, these riches that they had got from Betty's death had long been dissipated. So they got no more money and they need more money. And they were once more desperately in need of cash. So one evening, seated around a table behind the beaded curtain that separated the proprietor's back room from his bar. I'd like to think that there's this like a beaded curtain, you know, the curtain that has just those strings with a lot of beads in it. And there's this circular table and they're all like sitting down there, their hands intertwined together and their chin on the back of their hands like, what are we going to do? We need money. <laughs> 
So they were discussing what to do with their immediate futures because they need money and they don't got money. So the outlook was bleak. Not one of them had a creative idea. Then one of them remembered what had happened to Betty. So Pasqua, the undertaker, looked at the figure of Michael Malloy trying to get a free drink from one of the people drinking in the bar and he said, why don't you take out insurance in Malloy? I'll do the rest. Malloy, at the current time where he's an alcoholic and not a fireman anymore, was the perfect victim for them. A mindless, helpless, falling down drunk when lubricated. Lubricated? That sounds wrong. Anyway, <laughs> with his own frantic need for an oasis and patrons. So first, for the murder, murder trust, there was a formality. The members had to take out a life insurance policy or policies, so they're going to take out multiple ones, on Michael Malloy. Uh, on the face of it, this one's not really a simple matter because they're not uh, related to Michael Malloy at all. So normally, people were not insured without their knowledge, and that's also one problem. Michael Malloy does not, not, does not know that there's an insurance for him. So there's no exact details on how the policies were obtained, but there is no doubt that a cooperative insurance agent, one who did not ask questions and sought an easy commission because there's money to be had, was found. So Malloy, accustomed to just not getting the, the drinks that he wants because he doesn't have the money, was so thrilled that he eagerly signed a petition that would help elect Marino for local office. So there's this paper that's been given to him and he eagerly signed it because I think that he got bribed by like free drinks so he just eagerly signed it. But he, what he actually signed was an insurance policy form for Metropolitan Life for $800 and there's also two forms from Prudential for $495 each. Uh, the gang even provided Malloy with a crash pad in the back of the bar to sleep off his hangovers. So Malloy was not suspicious of this at all. He just find this like a good stroke of luck, I suppose. So he happily signed it and he happily used the crash pad to sleep off his hangovers, not knowing that these group of people are planning his death. So his life insurance policy was the form actually says that he is Nicholas Malloy instead of Michael Malloy and his age was shaved from 60 to 45 to keep the premiums low. So Michael Malloy this time is around 60. I have read that nobody really knows how old he is but people just assume that he is around 60 above or below a few years but it has been like shaved down to 45 because I guess Taking a life insurance policy for older people is harder or there's like a higher chance of getting more money if they're younger. He was identified as a relative. He is the brother of Joseph Murphy. The insurance overall of $1,788 of insurance on Malloy would be worth 3576 if he would die by accident. And the people would gain around 3500 which is equivalent to $70,000 in 2020, is what I have found. I'm not sure if that's accurate or if that's really right, but I found, a, I found an article that says it's around $70,000 at this time. So, the designated beneficiary of the policies was Anthony Marino. 
his four colleagues were to receive their portion of the take later. So now that they got the policies, the life insurance policy, and they're all set to go to kill Michael Malloy, basically. Now the plan is underway. The only minor problem was that there's a possibility that Malloy might become suspicious. Until now, at least in recent weeks, Malloy had been treated basically as a unwelcome guest inside the speakeasy. Suddenly, he should be made welcome and piled with like free drinks because they think that Michael Malloy is an old person, he's homeless, they think that his health isn't good and he can just drink himself to death and that's going to be the accident and then they could get the life insurance policy out and they would have some money. Uh, fortunately for the murder trust, I suppose you could say that, they have this idea that because the prohibition was still in effect and basically New York City has a lot of like really shoddy homebrews and contaminated ones the bootleggers concoctions because the prohibition is in effect they would just provide Malloy with a generous allotment of bad alcohol and watch him like die from that so when Michael Malloy was in Marino's speakeasy they greeted him warmly saying that because there's a competition of the bars or speakeasies around Marino was basically relaxing his credit restrictions and that Malloy like all of the regulars could take advantage of this so Malloy was very happy because, oh my gosh, I could get drinks again. I can just get drinks by myself and not talk to the other regulars and just basically beg for drinks from them. So he clung to the bar and basically began downing shots of whiskey nonstop. So initially, Marino and company had theorized that, as I have said, my Malloy was so weakened and debilitated by years of drinking that he was in such a bad shape and that an excessive amount of whiskey consumed in a short amount of time would swiftly, would swiftly just kill him. But every day for a week, Malloy basically drank like a fish <laughs> from noon to night then staggered out while the trust basically waited for news that he had died somewhere and they could take out the life insurance policy. Instead, each new day, Michael Malloy appeared in Marino's speakeasy looking refreshed and ready for more drinks. So after several weeks, several weeks, <laughs> this lasted for several weeks and every day, Malloy basically gets free liqueur. Marino noted that it was starting to cost him money. More, dips, more distressing for him is that Malloy's health basically looked like it got better. Malloy's pallor had lifted and his spirits were so happy because he has free, brew, free booze. He doesn't show any signs that he would drop dead any second. <laughs> and Marino is basically losing money because of it. And at one point, Marino's stock of alcohol actually neared depletion and he hasn't even achieved the desired result. And that gave the sense of urgency in the trust because what in the world is happening? He should be dead by now, but he's not. Like, what is this? <laughs> so they met and they made another plan to kill the basically the alcoholic in a subtle way that would make it look like an accident and the bartender murphy the one-time chemist was asked for advice he suggested that they stop giving malloy whiskey and start giving him automobile <laughs> radiator antifreeze which was wood alcohol and very poisonous the vote was unanimous in favor of this, and they 
thought and they believed that this would guarantee the quick demise of Michael Malloy. So apparently, drinks containing just around 4% of wood alcohol could cause blindness. And by 1929, more than 50,000 people nationwide had died from the effects of impure alcohol. So that's what they would serve Malloy. But they would not just serve Malloy like 4% of it. They would, uh, they would not just taint his drinks with wood alcohol, but they would give him wood alcohol straight up. Like pure wood alcohol. So they all thought this is such a brilliant plan, uh, declaring that he would give Michael Malloy all of the drink he wants and let him drink himself to death. Murphy, the one-time chemist, <laughs> the bartender, bought a few 10-cent cans of wood alcohol at a nearby paint shop and carried them back in a brown paper bag. So the next day, of course, Malloy appeared on schedule for his whiskey so Murphy passed him a few straight shots to soften him up for the lethal potion. Then he gave him the antifreeze. So Murphy had told Malloy that some new stuff had come in to disguise the fact that the drink tastes different compared to the cheap whiskey. And Malloy just happily drank it. And then he commented on how smooth it tasted. A half dozen shots of antifreeze were downed by Malloy before he passed out collapsing to the barroom floor at around 3 in the morning. The undertaker, Pasqua, examined him and announced that his heartbeat could hardly be heard and that he should be dead inside an hour. So they dragged him to the back room and anticipated that they would need to pay off like a physician for a quote-unquote hush job death certificate. But Iron Mike in an hour is still alive and is sound asleep on the floor. In three hours, he sat up, got to his feet, apologized for his poor postures, just poor state, and said he was thirsty. So, he did not die. He lived through that. I found that the possible explanation that why the antifreeze not kill him is because ethanol basically blocks absorption of ethylene glycol in the liver, and this is used as an antidote for antifreeze poisoning. So that's what other people thought as to how basically Michael Malloy survived drinking wood alcohol. <laughs> so of course, the murder trust was basically ast astounded. Marino decided that Murphy had not given their victim enough antifreeze. So for another week, day and night, Malloy basically poured double and triple shots of antifreeze enough to kill a battalion. At the end of each daily session, Michael Malloy passed out, slept, woke up, and then asked for more. <laughs> so, <laughs> bewildered, because I would be bewildered as well, like, how is this guy still alive? First of all, because of this, like, alcoholism, if he's drinking day and night, amount of the amount of whiskey that he danced day and night, how is he not dead from alcohol poisoning? So, bewildered, Marino basically changed the formula. No more antifreeze. From now on, Malloy must be given turpentine. <laughs> I don't know, I don't, I'm not quite sure what a turpentine is, but it doesn't sound like it's gonna be good for you. So Mal Michael Malloy accepted the turpentine, swallowed glass after glass of it, stumbled out into the night, and the following day, he's back for more. <laughs> Soon, because turpentine isn't working, it was replaced by shots of undiluted horse liniment, and it's sometimes <laughs> lightened by rat poison. Malloy down the fluids and flourished. So what in the world is happening in this man's stomach? 
It's rat poison, man. Rat poison. What the heck? So Pasco confided to his colleagues that he had once buried a man who had succumbed after combining raw oysters with whiskey. Hearing about this, Marino ordered that they should try this concoction, except with one modification. The raw oysters would be tainted by wood alcohol. So Michael Malloy ate all these raw oysters and wood alcohol and wobbled out of Marino's speakeasy toward his pet. After downing around two dozen, Malloy was so happy by the cuisine that he encouraged Marino <laughs> to open up a restaurant. <laughs> so not only is he not dead, he liked it. He liked raw oysters with wood alcohol. First of all, I, uh, as another thing that I'm like wor worried about is how is his taste buds? How is he liking this? It doesn't sound like this is something that would taste real great. I haven't tasted wood alcohol because I'm pretty sure I would die if I drink that. But I don't think that would taste really good. Right? So the mood of the murder trust basically went dark because no matter what they do, Michael Malloy just wouldn't die. And frustration led to more creative thinking. Finally, Murphy came up with a positive thing. If Malloy could be fed some poisoned food from the free lunch tray, that would be certain to do him in. So the suggestion was met with a lot of enthusiasm. The bartender was told to proceed. Immediately, Murphy opened up an old can of sardines and put it outside to spoil. When it started smelling foul and contamination was like certain, Murphy spread the sardines on a slice of bread, mixed in with some carpet tacks, <laughs> my god, worked in some shavings of a, of a sardine can a machine shop had obligingly prepared. I don't know how they explain that to a machine shop and why they want some shavings of a sardine can. So laid on another piece of bread and presented Malloy the sandwich. Such a beautiful sandwich it is. How does a... Uh, I don't want to even think about the smell of that sandwich. So delighted that he is given a free sandwich, Malloy accepted the sandwich. He chomped on it, he chewed on it, he swallowed it, and finished it all licking his fingers. And he washed it down with a few more drinks of wood alcohol. <laughs> he left his way out of the bar and started for home. So the five members of the murder trust were gleeful as they waited for word that Malloy is dead, either from poisoning or stomach hemorrhage. But the following morning, they heard nothing about it. The following afternoon, Malloy went in the speakeasy ready for a drink and another one of those sandwiches. <laughs> right? This is such a ridiculous, like, killing a person is never good, but this is, this is such, <laughs> uh, quite an entertaining case, if I could say so myself. So for the murder trust, this was all too much. A small fortune was within their grasp, yet they could not claim it without Malloy dying, and their victim was basically undefeatable. <laughs> so they began to regard Michael Malloy as a phenomenon of nature. His stomach was obviously cast iron or something. So nothing taken into his digestive tract or bloodstream, just it just wouldn't harm him at all. If he were to be successfully obliterated, another means should be done. And the trust members considered the variety of possibilities and settled on a surefire way that they had done before. So, they acted on the coldest night of the winter. Outside, there was a snowstorm, an icy wind, and the temperature was around 14 degrees below zero, so that's really, really cold. So in Marinos, 
speak easy, Maloy was encouraged to drink until he like basically passes out. Marino and Pasqua carried his unconscious body to Harry Green's taxi and they waited outside the door. After lifting Maloy into the back seat, the two men got in beside him. They drove to Claremont Park where they basically placed Maloy, coatless, carried from the road into the park and laid out on the wet snow behind some bushes. Opening his shirt, they poured a five-gallon tin of water over him and then they left. So that's what they did to Betty. And she died, so this is like, for them, this is a surefire way to make it look like it's an accident. Because it worked for them. So the next day, the gang eagerly searched the afternoon papers for news of Malloy's death from exposure, but the papers offered nothing. Perhaps it was just too early. That evening, Pasqua showed up with a bad head cold from the outing the night before. Then the speakeasy door opened and there stood Michael Malloy, looking invigorated. He marched to the bar, called out for his first drink. <laughs> so he said, quote-unquote, that he had really tied one on the night before and he wound up nearly naked in the park. Fortunately, the police had found him and a welfare organization gave him new clothes. So he was saved. And he was fine and he was alive. And that made the murder trust frantic. They huddled and decided to call in an expert, <laughs> basically. And they called in a friend of Marino's, Anthony, quote-unquote, Tough Tony Bastone. And he is a professional killer. After explaining everything to, him, to them and what is currently happening to date, they asked their consultant to advise them. So, Anthony delivered and advised them to stop the fancy stuff and just murder Malloy outright. <laughs> Marino didn't want anything obvious that would alert the police. Bastone said that it sh need not be obvious. It could be an accident. So, the gang hired the driver, Harry Green, and offered him $150 to run Malloy down in this vehicle. On January 30, 1933, a nearly unconsciously drunk Malloy was driven from Marino's to Pelham Parkway. So Murphy stood him up in the middle of the road roadway and Green backed up his taxi around two full blocks to build up enough speed to complete the job. Somehow, Malloy ended up stumbling to safety. <laughs> so the next night, at 3 in the morning, once more using Harry Green's taxi, Marino and Bastone drove out to the deserted intersection of Baychester Avenue and Gunhill Road. Malloy, who is not surprisingly passed out from drink hours before, sat slumped between them. So they dragged him out into the intersection and held him up so they didn't let go of him this time while Green backed up his taxi. Then Green catapulted his cab towards them at around 45 miles per hour. Marino and Bastone released Malloy and jumped aside to safety, so the speeding auto basically smashed full into Malloy and threw him into the air. Oops. And threw him into the air, knocking him down, running him over, basically leaving him, leaving him in the middle of the street. And the trio, feeling very victorious that uh, at last, at last we have done it, fled the scene of the crime. The next day, Malloy did not appear in Marino's. And he also didn't appear the next, nor the next day. Two weeks passed by, and there's no Malloy. The murder trust was very sure that he was dead at last, but they had to prove it to the insurance companies. So they needed to see, like, an obituary. So they read the obituaries, no mention of Malloy, 
they visited the morgue, no mention of Malloy. They phoned hospitals, no Malloy. So he basically just vanished from the earth. But Stone suggested they waste no more time, find another bum, run him over, identify him as Malloy, and collect the insurance money. So just a clone, something that could be a replacement. So desperate, they contacted a professional hitman, but his fee was way too expensive, around $500. They then basically led in another drunk, Joe Murray, stupefied him with liqueur and stuffed his coat pocket with Malloy's ID and ran him over with a cab. Murray, a substitute for Malloy in every way, did not die. Yep, the second victim that they wanted to kill because Malloy just wouldn't die and just vanished after they ran him over, did not die. He recovered from his injuries after two months in Lincoln Hospital. So the only way is to knock off Malloy, the gang determined. <laughs> but Malloy is gone. They couldn't find him. So then, in the third week of Malloy's disappearance, the murder trust were basically thrown into turmoil because... Because... Because why? Why do you think they were in turmoil? Michael Malloy himself walked in, sat down at the bar. He apologized for his absence because apparently he'd been in the hospital, which had neglected to list him as a patient. Malloy explained that he had been in a car accident and he'd suffered a concussion of the brain and a fractured shoulder, but now he was fine. And he said, quote-unquote, I'm sure ready for a drink. <laughs> so you can see why this is like the tale of Iron Mike. He just wouldn't die. So the murder trust was basically in despair. They had placed all of their chips on a human who was apparently indestructible. Once more, a stone, the professional killer that they're friends with, suggested that they stop using finesse, stop being clever, and just get rid of Malloy the quickest way possible and cash in their insurance policies. All of them agreed they're so done with the clever ruse now, they're just going to outright kill him. Murphy, the bartender, offered his room on Fulton Avenue. On Washington's birthday, the gang treated Malloy to his quota of drinks. He got drunk as usual and passed out. So Chris Burke and Murphy took him to Murphy's room and dropped him down on the bed. One end of a rubber hose was attached to the gas jet and the other end was stuffed into Malloy's mouth. They let the gas fill him until his face is all purple. In the morning, sadly... Michael Malloy was found dead. Ah, I wanted him to just keep on, to just continue living so the buffoons will just forever be stumped and will forever be paying for the life insurance policy and they would never be able to cash it out and they wouldn't have money anymore, you know, but sadly, Michael Malloy died because of gas inhalation because how in the world are you going to live through that now? So Dr. Frank Manzella, an ex-alderman, was called in to write the death certificate. He certi certified that Michael Malloy had expired from lower pneumonia, noting alcoholism as a contributing factor. Because this is basically not pneumonia, the gang paid him $50 for his service. Pasqua didn't embalm Malloy, who had no next of kin. So he died, sadly, after around over 30 attempts. Sadly. I wanted him to just live. You know, Iron Mike. But Iron Mike... You're a legend. You're a legend. So for a promise of a $400 share of the insurance payoff, Undertaker Pasqua placed Malloy in a 
$10 pine coffin and buried him in a $12 plot of ground in the Ferncliff Cemetery in Westchester. He was, huh, this makes me sad now. He was buried without a wake some four hours after his death. Such a just lonely, lonely death. Eh, ah, that's sad. That made me sad. So the murder trust were suspicious of one another. Now, after his death, after the finally successful murder, they were now uh, basically suspicious of each other. And if someone talked too much, they would be caught, and that's why they are suspicious. When Bastone tried to improve on his share of the insurance stake, he was liquidated, but the basic five continued to be indiscreet until the Bronx police began to hear rumors because despite the fact that they're suspicious of each other, they're also very much not discreet at all. <laughs> like, they could not hide it at all. They're just buffoons. It's, it's buffoons. So Murphy, posing as Malloy's brother, collected the $800 from Metropolitan Life, and when agents from Prudential came around to press more money in his hand, they couldn't find him because Murphy was in jail on another charge, and this basically aroused suspicion among the insurance agents who contacted the police. So police started piecing together the puzzle of this murderous ring. Green hadn't been paid his full share and started talking, so he basically threw everybody under the bus. While a professional hitman told friends that an insurance ring had been set to hire him, but his fee was too high. So the one who has the fee of $500, and they could not hire him because he was basically too expensive. And then police learned of another victim, Betty Carlson, who had died of pneumonia in mysterious circumstances in the same speakeasy. The life insurance beneficiary for her death was also Marino. So because a lot of evidence has basically piled up, they arrested the gang. District Attorney Foley pursued the death penalty. So when they checked and learned that an actual Michael Malloy had died on Washington's birthday and there were policies on his life, they went to Ferncliff Cemetery and exhumed Michael Malloy's body. In May 1933, grave diggers exhumed Mike Malloy's body from a 12 foot, 12 foot, 12 foot deep pauper's plot in the charity section of Westchester County's Ferncliff Cemetery. The coroner found Malloy had not died of pneumonia but had been eliminated by use of illuminating gas and that's where the members of the trust were formally charged with murder. A trial at the Bronx County Courthouse, the four murderers either claimed insanity or shifted the blame to each other and then they finally accused Tony Bastone, uh, a gangster who they said forced them to kill Malloy. Bastone couldn't testify because he had been killed a month after Malloy's death. Yeah. So the jury, jury deliberated seven hours. Harry Green, the one who basically threw everybody under the bus, went to prison. Dr. Frank Manzella, the corrupt uh, coroner, went to prison. On June 7, 1934, Anthony Marino, Frank Pasqua, and Daniel Kreisberg went to the electric chair and Sing Sing. On July 5, 1934, Joseph Murphy also died in the chair. Malloy was then reburied and took with him to the grave the secret of a hardy and nearly indestructible constitution. So that's basically how the case ends. But I'd like to see, I like to say this last sentence because I found it really nice uh, to end this case with. It says, because of his indestructibility, 
Michael Malloy had forced his killers to resort to obvious murder, and as a result, four of them died. They died, yet somehow, Malloy lives. Right? That was nice. And there's also this sentence that I forgot to note down, but it basically said that after over 30 murder attempts on his life, Michael Malloy has lived. But after like one try, all of his murderers are dead. Not all, but four of them are now dead. And that's how the case ends. And I am very much proud of myself for managing to keep it this short. <laughs> for once, after a long time, it's around... This recording is around 45 minutes, I think. So, and I will cut it down a little bit more because I have rambled, I think. I have rambled a lot in this episode and I can cut it down for around a shorter time. And I'm proud of myself for not, <laughs> for not dragging this out for way too long. Yay! <laughs> so, because the last couple of cases were all pretty much on the darker side, I'd like to put like a short lighter one despite the fact that it's still pretty dark because it's still murder and like here to have like a break for all this heavy heavy stuff because i might take up a case that's heavier again we don't know i haven't exactly fully decided what case i would what true crime case i would cover in the next true crime full ramble because the next one would be a paranormal one um since this is one of the rare cases where I am deep into research on the next topic, I think I should give like a tease, I suppose. And uh, the next topic would be... I cannot say if it's like a paranormal full ramble because there's not ghosts. There's no ghosts. There's no demons. And this is basically uh, a phenomenon. Yes, I would talk about the phenomenon. Uh, and this phenomenon would basically be combustion yep i think i've given a lot too much hints but it's going to center around combustion and i've been very uh interested in this for a while now and i'm gonna research into it i don't know if i could research like deep 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 into it because there's a lot of science but that's what i'm going to cover the next week yep <laughs> i cannot think of a mini ramble at the moment but if i do i could it'll just drop it at in the middle of a week or something so yeah this is how i would end this true crime full ramble i hope you found this interesting i found you find this a little bit on the wacky side as i have thought <laughs> as i said because in my personal uh, opinion this is like bananas <laughs> yes so as usual if you have any kind of story that you want me to cover any recommendation on a case on a phenomenon on anything macabre and if you have stories that you have experienced yourself or your family or your friends that they have experienced and they have allowed you to share into the world uh, message me or email me at macabramblings at gmail.com and you could also dm me and contact me at instagram which is macabramblings podcast and i'm also at twitter at macarambles which is m-a-c-a rambles uh, all of these links are basically in the notes of every episode. So if you do not want to manually search for them, you can just click the about us, about us, about page of any episode in this podcast. It's listed down there after the notes or just the summary of 
what the episode of the podcast is all about. And that's about it. Always eat well, uh, drink well, hydrate. Make sure you're all cozy. If it's too warm in your country, try your best to keep yourself cool so heat stroke wouldn't happen. If it's too cold, make yourself all warm so hypothermia or colds wouldn't happen. Always stay safe. Wear your masks. Wash your hands. Keep your hygiene. Keep your distance. Social distancing is still important nowadays, people. Even if there are shots now to stop the pandemic. But yep. So stay spooky and stay safe everyone.